You know, sometimes the internet or the news cycle can bring you some pretty amazing stuff. Seems like week after week it does. This week was no different. I saw a couple kind of outrageous things that actually made me think of our passage for today. Don't, don't look ahead to the passage because you'll get distracted by how does this work. I'll explain it. The first one is a video that I saw, and I hope that some of you have seen this. But it's, if you could just imagine like a home security camera, and it's just like looking down on the driveway, and there's some cars parked there, and you see this dad doing awesome dad stuff, and he's walking up the car. He puts his coffee down on the hood. There's kind of a kid in the background by the street just being weird, like doing weird stuff. And all of a sudden, you see the wife pop out, and she's walking between the cars, and you just hear, and all of a sudden you just see this woman like doing this and this cat like jumps on her back and the husband because he's awesome runs over there and he grabs this cat off of her back and he's holding it like this and he's like holy moly this is a bobcat and it starts to try to bite him and he takes it and he just throws it as far as he can in the yard now that's when the weird kid gets weird because the weird kid runs and tries to pick up the bobcat but the bobcat runs away. So just imagine walking out to your car, put your coffee down, hear a cat, and then it's a bobcat. So you're super scared, and like what was a normal morning turns into kind of like a life or death scenario. So that's the f- that, was, that was great. I was very thrilled when my friend sent me that. The next thing I'll share with you is just a story. I sh- I'll just kind of share with you the headline. Uh, It talks about a random guy off the street made his way into the University of Southern California's football facility. So USC's football facility. And so when he got there, he started eating meals. He got in a jacuzzi hot tub with the players. He got himself a uniform issued. He got the equipment manager to give him helmet, pads, everything that he needed. And they only started to realize he didn't belong when he was returning punts. <laughs> so, an imposter, right? Uh, and I say this because these two things made me think of our pastor today because one thing jumps out at you, ends up being super scary, turns into a life or death scenario, and the other one has to deal with an imposter. But unlike this imposter, there's nothing funny about our passage today. It is indeed actually scary and it quickly kind of turns into a life and death matter. So if you would follow along as I read for us now, Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 through 29, you may recognize this as the end of Jesus's sermon on the mount. Please follow along as I read now. Jesus is speaking and he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Then he continues and says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Pray with me real quick, please. Lord, we pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word, that we might see Christ, that we might become like him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sinclair Ferguson says that true preaching has several functions, but many times we mistakenly think that preaching only has one function. But sermons are meant to instruct us. They're meant to shape and transform our thinking and our feelings, and they're meant to challenge us to new action, to new courses of action in our life. Also, it's been said that many times a good sermon will call us to a decision, and Jesus does that here. But there's actually more to a good sermon. A good sermon should unleash God's Word on us in such a way that it changes our lives once we hear it. And Jesus has that same goal. Jesus' aim for his Sermon on the Mount was changed lives. I noted earlier that these are the closing verses of the Sermon on the Mount. To this point, Jesus has probably been preaching possibly for hours, instructing people how to be blessed, telling them what God requires of those who would be in the kingdom of God. He expounded on the Old Testament scriptures. He declared to them what he desires is internal righteousness, not just external righteousness. He even goes so far as to give warnings against false prophets and against false teachers. But at the end of this sermon, J.C. Ryle notes that Jesus winds up his sermon with a passage of heart-piercing application. He turns from false prophets to false professors. He turns from unsound teachers to unsound hearers. Now, in these closing verses, Jesus uses two very scary illustrations, but the aim for both of those illustrations is the same, and it's this. The aim is authenticity. That's what Jesus is trying to drill down to, is authenticity. In fact, I would say that the non-negotiable aim of Jesus' two illustrations is to force his listeners then and now to wrestle with the idea of what is authentic faith, what is true Christianity, you could say. In verses 21 through 23, he begins his call for authenticity by dealing with imposters. And then in verses 24 through 27, he addresses faulty builders and flawed foundations. So we're going to look at imposters and faulty builders or flawed foundations, but we'll begin with imposters because it is the scariest of all the verses. In fact, if I polled the congregation, this would probably be the crowd vote for scariest passage in the Bible. Authenticity in our culture today is a really big deal. Seemingly everyone desires authenticity or genuineness. It's an admirable trait. I read an article that came out a couple years ago talking about how businesses are striving for brand authenticity because they found that consumers have an ever-growing critical eye towards them. A business's truthfulness is under scrutiny. In fact, they show that the demographics show that our trusting of what someone says to us in advertising is just plummeting year after year after year. And that trend has continued since that article came out a couple of years ago. 
And uh, you, I mean, that may be just a reflex from all the fake news we're fed, or it could just be the inevitable conclusion that would happen when more and more information is available that we would become more critical. But the fact remains that we as consumers have a much more critical eye. If you look at these two, these three verses here that Jesus talks about, I really think Jesus is asking us to develop a critical eye when it comes to examining authentic Christianity. And I think he calls us to develop a critical eye first by looking at ourselves. Now, I mentioned there's no doubt that verses 21, 22, and 23 are a scary passage. And if we're to believe what that passage is telling us, and what Jesus is really trying to say and apply it to our situation here this morning, the implication would be that in this gathering, there's a really good chance that there are people in these pews that profess Christ, but don't know him. They would profess Christ, but Jesus would say, I don't, I don't know you. That's why this passage is so scary. And the question all, I, you immediately start to think is, is it me? <laughs> I, I, that's why I get uncomfortable. That's why I'm scared. But the reality is Jesus isn't trying to scare us just to make us feel bad. He's actually making us uncomfortable in hopes of provoking true, authentic faith in us. And that's what I hope to get at. But I want to look at these imposters for just a second. What was true about all of these imposters that he spoke about? I think there's three characteristics that we could, could look at which is true about the imposters. First is they had great doctrine. They had great doctrine. They couldn't have better doctrine, in fact. These would be the Westminster Confession of Faith champions of their day kind of doctrine. And I'll give you an example of why I say that. If you look at their profession there in verse 21, it says to me, Lord, Lord. Well, the word that they're using there isn't Lord as in like, sir, or a, a recognition of like respect, but it's the word kurios. It is the, same, it's the Greek word used to define the name of God, Jehovah. They, they're, they're literally calling Jesus God. They peg Jesus correctly. That is a bold statement. Like, you can't get better doctrine than that. But they don't just have good doctrine. The next thing they have is passion. And these imposters are not nominal in their faith. In fact... They're not apathetic with their words. If you look at this, again, go back to that profession, just in those two words, Lord, Lord. This is the type of thing someone would say using this type of repetition, kind of like saying it from their gut and just kind of demonstrating to anyone who would listen, I really mean what I say. It's the way you would have shown your zeal for what you mean. Like they would have pounded the table like, no, I really believe. So they have great doctrine and they are passionate. And lastly, possibly the scariest of all of them is that they're very gifted. They have great doctrine, they're passionate, and they're gifted. They're undisputably gifted, in fact. And they even did miracles. Jesus never denies one of the impressive works and wonders that they claim to have done. And for all we know, they could have led people to Christ. There were very impressive things done by them. They were impressive, you could say, active in all types of spirituality. But after all this, Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. So what do we take away from all this, from what we just saw? 
and this perhaps sounds overstated, but I think it would be safe to say that a public profession of faith, pristine theology, passionate speech, and spiritual activity are utterly useless and insufficient when it comes to salvation. These are all great and admirable things, but to own them doesn't mean that you are saved. Obviously, by the way, obviously Christians should have good doctrine. They should have a good profession of faith. They should be passionate. They should serve the Lord with love and good deeds. But these are not what is essential to authentic faith, to true belief in Jesus. So the question then is, well, what distinguishes authentic faith from imposter faith? I go back to the word they kept using, Lord. It's lordship. It's the matching of your profession with your practice. To truly call Jesus Lord isn't about right belief or passion or exercising gifts. It's about surrender. That's the difference. It was surrender. It's surrendering your will to Christ. Uh, one pastor theologian notes that many people are ready to adopt a faith that is intellectually stimulating, emotionally gratifying, and socially redemptive, but they don't want God. They don't want to have to surrender their will to God. They don't want to have to surrender the final say to him. They want to stay in control of their lives, or at least have control of certain areas. Another way to say it is they want what God will provide them, but they just don't want God's rule in their life. They may want to appear godly. That would be advantageous. They may even want to appease God and serve God because it is important but they do not want to give away the control of their lives to him fully. Now, I believe Jesus is telling us that authentic Christianity, the authentic Christian, gives their life to Christ. Perhaps some of you use that when you share your testimony, that I gave my life to Christ. That is great language. Because authentic Christianity is about giving our life to Christ, surrendering to him. It's not about cleaning ourselves up and baptizing our self-centered life. There's a sense in which I'll just clean my life up. I'll baptize it in church language and some good works. It looks the same, but it's like the guy at the UC, USC football facility. He looks the part, but he's not real. And I'll summarize by saying this. The absence of these three characteristics, by the way, good doctrine and passion and gifts, means you're not a Christian. <laughs> but the flip side of that is the presence of them also doesn't mean that you're a Christian, but is Jesus functionally the Lord of your life? Have you surrendered your will to Christ? Have you truly trusted in Christ alone, and are you willing to follow him, Lord and Savior? Now, the reality is, is you could answer that question yes and still struggle with surrendering. So how are you, by the way, at surrendering your will to God when it's really hard or when the temptation gets really dicey? Is it our regular practice to attack our selfish desires, to take our thoughts captive to Christ, to deny our flesh, to seek to build his kingdom instead of being focused on building our own little kingdom, our life, our career, our family? Jesus's aim and desire is authenticity, true religion, faith that is lived out, practiced, not just professed. So let's move on to the second and final point, which is when Jesus goes to deal with the faulty builders that have the flawed foundations. Authentic faith must have a correct foundation or it's worthless. If you will, 
once again, look at verses 24 through 27 with me just to remind ourselves what it says. It says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and a great was the fall of it. Now I want you to imagine for a second that you're house shopping, and you see two houses in the same neighborhood. It's the same house, the same finishes, same color, same age, same everything. And you notice one house costs half as much as the other house. So the first thing that pops in your mind is what's wrong with that house? And so you talk to the realtor and they tell you that the foundation in that house is cracked in multiple places and uh, no one's willing to buy it because it's just unstable. Now the parable Jesus tells us is kind of like this house shopping experience. If you look at verses 24 through 27, we have two identical houses, but one of them is deeply flawed and worthless. And we do have limited time this morning, so I just want to focus on the most important element of this illustration, and that is the foundation. For our faith to be authentic, it must be built upon a sure foundation. That foundation, you might say, is Jesus. I would be like, look at the passage. (laughs) It is Jesus, but it's not just Jesus. What is it? It's everything that Jesus says. It's the Word of God. It's the Scriptures. It's the Bible. It's what he's taught us. And he says it'll help us in this life and the next. In fact, it will save us in this life and the next. Then Jesus goes on to describe a second builder whose house collapses because it was built on a faulty foundation. That means it's built on something other than the Word of God. This builder did not build upon Jesus' Word, but something else. Perhaps, who knows what that is? It could be his own wisdom. Most likely, if Uh, you're here today and this passage is applying to you in a negative way it's because somehow we've taken a little bit of what the bible says and a little bit of what i think or the world says combine that and what we end up getting is a foundation that looks good but under pressure it's going to crack jesus says the only one that's good is the one that's built on his word now james montgomery boyce tells a story of a english pastor named joseph parker He tells about how in his autobiography, he tells, this is Dr. Parker, by the way, in his autobiography, he tells of a time that he had put too much weight on what he called a destructive theory, kind of worldly thinking, uh, destructive thinking of his day. And as a result, he soon found himself undervaluing the Bible. And at that time, shortly after, then a tragedy hit in Dr. Parker's life. His wife passed away. And then sorrow entered his life. And he said that he found himself wandering around through his house. And he said that as he wandered, he put his feet down like he was searching for footing. But these theories of the world gave him nothing. He found none. Now later in life, this pastor found himself in a room of pastors telling him, this story and he says in those dark hours of my soul's anguish when filled with doubt and trembling fear I recalled the old gospel of redemption alone through the blood of Christ the gospel I had preached in those earlier days 
And I put my foot down on that and found firm standing. And he finished by saying, I stand there today and I shall die resting upon the blessed, glorious truth of salvation through the precious blood of Christ. Now, similar to Dr. Parker's day, there's a plethora of theories in our day that would possibly entice us to undervalue the Bible or to ignore it or to make it difficult to follow. Honestly, there's a philosophy for every day of the week, but with every theory, every philosophy, there is an ask, and it asks you to trust it. It asks you to follow it, to put faith in it, to build your thinking around it. And I don't want to name names, but sometimes we got to name names. Like some of these theories are dangerous. I will name some. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at someone else. But critical theory, evolution, Marxism, conservative politics, liberal politics, atheism, Christian nationalism, and the worst one of all, your own wisdom. These are all theories we would seek to buy into that would be a false foundation. Jesus tells us, without even needing to know what philosophy we're buying into, that that foundation is fraudulent because he knows there's only one true, good, worthy, sure foundation, and that's him. Mix anything else with it, it's false. Jesus and his word plus something is wrong. It's just the word of God. And Jesus says this because he knows they're all fatally flawed. They won't be able to stand. They can't stand the storms of life. They can't deal with the hard questions. They can't be brought to their end because they can't handle death and suffering and eternity. But the word of God is stable ground. So how do you know that you have the right foundation? How do you know that your foundation isn't Jesus plus something, some kind of worldly wisdom or your own wisdom? How do you know that you haven't taken your own self-curated worldview and dashed it with a little bit of Christianity? Well, first step is admit that it's likely true that some worldly thinking has crept into your mind. We're not perfect. None of us is able to cast the first stone on this one. So just admit where we are. The second step would then mean to heed the warning that Jesus gives us right here to examine ourselves. To ask the question, where are we tempted with worldly thinking, worldly philosophy? Where are we tempted to have it gain influence in our lives? In fact, I can stand up here and preach this, but often, if I put myself into a camp, often it's the people who bang the table for the Word of God as the only foundation that have the most glaring weaknesses as well. Like, we can't throw the first stone, but we have the privilege of knowing the true foundation so we can examine ourselves against it. And that's where we get to the third step. We can admit it. We can admit our blind spots. We examine ourselves. But then the third step is we can repent and trust. The hymn, How Firm a Foundation, says, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. But more can he say than to you he hath said, to you, for, for, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. We should be eager to repent of our own way. Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, and by his perfect work, he has laid the perfect foundation for us. We can go to it at any time and cast off anything that would hinder us and be saved for forever, but also saved from every storm that would seek to take us down. 
doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. This house isn't built on our perfect righteousness. It's built on the foundation. We are flawed, but our foundation is perfect, so it will stand. If you saw these last two verses of our passage today, 28 and 29, the Sermon on the Mount ends by saying that people were amazed at the authority which Jesus preached. That's a terrible ending in one way. The point of the sermon wasn't that they'd be amazed. The question is whether or not their faith is authentic. The question is whether or not they're built, their life is built upon God's word or something else. Let us not walk away saying we're amazed. Rather, let us delight in the fact that we trust in Christ, we have surrendered ourselves to Christ, and we're building our life on him. If so, then we can delight in knowing that Christ is ours forevermore. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would drive home your truth in our hearts, that we might see where we would be tempted to look to another to provide answers in life or security. But Lord, we know that there is no other foundation than you. And Lord, we know that you call us to not just profess you as Savior, but to live as though you are our Lord. So Lord, help us to put into practice what we profess. Because Lord, honestly, we just want to love you back the way that you have loved us. Give us that grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.